What kind of an image do you get in your mind when you think of motorcycle travel? It probably conjures up images of, I don't know, long open roads, maybe foreign lands, adventure, mountains. But in most cases, it always involves some understanding that in the end, you're going to come back home with your stories of the road. But for some, and they're very few and far between, the trip becomes their life. And they continue their journey on two wheels and they sort of abandon the thought of returning home. Or maybe they started out that way to begin with. But the road becomes everything to them, their entertainment, their social life, the whole bit, which is exactly the way it is for Jackie Hayen. Jackie lives on the road with her motorcycle, but for her it wasn't quite so easy to hit the road to begin with for this sort of bohemian lifestyle because she doesn't like sleeping on the ground. So she wanted to pull a camper. And as you can probably imagine, in most cases, that doesn't go so well with a motorcycle, but she's managed to do it. Uh, Just that, pull her camper. That's coming up on today's episode. And also in this little segment that we do with Jackie, we're going to talk about a place that is often referred to as the last free place on earth, and it's located in the U.S. And coming up on this episode as well, how about helping, well, really the planet out by having an amazing motorcycle adventure in maybe Mongolia. And here's the real clincher. If you connect with Rally for Rangers and you get accepted, you won't even have to pay for it necessarily yourself. You can raise the money to do it and really help out in a big way. All this and more coming up. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any bag into motorcycle luggage with this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding, which has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hitstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Slug. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeBell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Also, Best Rest is a North American distributor for Google Tech filters, the filters that should be on your bike. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com.
Jackie Hayen has taken living on the road off of a motorcycle to a completely new level with her two-wheeled camper, dog, and chicken. No, no, you got it right. I said chicken. And one of the places that Jackie likes to spend time is often called the last free place on earth. And you too can visit there. I'm Jackie Hine, and I'm originally from Seward, Nebraska, but I live on the road full-time, and I am the first person to live full-time in a teardrop trailer pulled by a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, and I've been on the road for five and a half years. Jackie, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. You're traveling around with a motorcycle pulling a teardrop trailer, which is a camper trailer for those who don't know with a dog and a chicken. Have I got that right? Yes. Yes, you do. Okay. Yes. Let's, let's just start with the bike. <laughs> I okay. want to know about the bike. Because I think you say it's a hard, 2007 Harley-Davidson uh, FLHT. What is an FLHT? Um, that's the Electroglide standard. So it's a, it's a bagger. It's like uh, more, it's got a big fairing on it, um, but it's got the more of a build of a uh, road king, but it has the hard saddlebags, the fairing, and it's got a tour pack on it. So it's a big bike. 1584 cc's, 96 cubic inch. What kind of mileage do you get with that? I still get 30 to 40 miles per gallon, um, depending on how hilly it is and how well I packed. <laughs> Okay, so now the trailer, the teardrop trailer. This is actually, this is a manufactured camper trailer. Correct. It was made by Little little Guy, and it was called a Rascal. They don't make that one anymore. They changed over to a MyPod. Um, but they made the Little Guy Rascal, and they're hard to find because they only made them if you ordered them. So they specially made them just for you because it's small. I mean, it's like a full-size bed, um, six feet, two inches long, I believe, and about four and a half feet wide. Um, so not a whole lot of people use them because they're small, but they worked well for motorcycles and small vehicles. So, um, you had to call and special order them, um, to make that for you. What kind of weight is the trailer? Um, when I originally got it, it was 490 dry weight. And then what I did a couple years ago is I modified it. Because when you get into most teardrop trailers where they're just a bed, you're getting in and there's like a cupboard right at your face. And then you put your feet under the cupboard and the back shelf or they sometimes they have a kitchen back there or whatever. Well, I kept hitting my knees on the cupboard. So I told my dad, I said, forget about the cupboard. I mean, it was very small. It really didn't hold anything. So we took out the cupboard and the back shelf completely. So now it's completely open. And when I open up the back hatch of the teardrop trailer, it's not a kitchen. I can actually see straight through um, to the outside. So I get a really great view when I just pop it open. So I always park it so that's facing, you know, the lake or the mountain. And then I can just pop it open and lay inside and out of the sun and see everything I want to see that oh, way. I get it. Normally they're manufactured so that you walk around to the back, you open it up like you're opening the hatch on a car or something. And in there Correct. is your kitchen. You sort of have it cover over your head and you've got all your kitchen stuff there. So where's your kitchen now? Well, all I ever use... Um, 
on the road is a little hiker burner because the full kitchen in the back was too much weight for the motorcycle. So we had, it was originally 490 dry weight. Well, then you have to add all of your gear or whatever you're taking with you. And when I originally started, I traveled with two dogs and a cat. They rode in the trailer and I pulled, but then you have all of this extra weight. So with the 490, with the big cupboards and everything, I I was probably knocking 600 to 650 in weight pulling back behind. I mean, that's being generous pulling back there because I would put everything in there. So I made everything. I travel somewhat like a hiker. So I cook like a hiker on a hiker burner. I don't have refrigeration. I generally try to use dry foods because they're lighter in weight than canned foods. It's not always possible, but that's what I try to do. Um, And I try and I have to bring my own water most places that I camp. So I generally carry five to six gallons of water and that will last me a week out in the middle of nowhere. Um, And so you have to kind of, I, I kind of fit nowhere, right? So I don't really fit in the biker world because... I don't like to sleep on the ground (laughs) and I don't fit in the hiker world because I'm not walking from one place to the next. And I don't really fit into the RV world because I'm kind of like this little bitty trailer in comparison. And I don't have, you know, all of the gadgets and all of the, the comforts of home. I mean, it's comforts of home for me. I mean, I have, you know, what I need, but for most people, it wouldn't be very comfortable if that makes sense. So you're a misfit among misfits is what you're trying to say? (laughs) I totally am. <laughs> and, you know, it's very hard to realize, but, you know, and, you know, it doesn't help that now I added the chicken. So people really think that I'm making it up when I go to places and say what I'm doing or like when I send out press releases or looking for sponsorships, they really think I'm crazy and that I'm making it up. They just can't believe that I would actually live that way full time. What made you get on the road to begin with? Well, I've been researching it for years. Um, Even before I got a motorcycle, I kind of was like, I never sat in one place for very long. I moved like different apartments once a year or whatever. But I got a motorcycle. I got my motorcycle license in 2007. And this Electroglide is my first and only bike. So I took the class. And then the next week I went to the Harley shop and I was testing, you know, sitting on all these bikes. And I was like, This one's the one I want because I'm going to travel with it. I'm going to go places with it. I'm not just going to cruise around town. I want something comfortable. So I got the bike. And then as soon as I got the bike, I started researching how to hit the road. And I found these little teardrop trailers. Well, you know, I was in school. I was in – and then I went to grad school. And then I found, you know, a job at this nonprofit I worked at. And then it just all kind of aligned. Like – the nonprofit, you know, yeah, I probably could have worked there forever, but I, it was a nonprofit. So it wasn't like I was making money, right? I was surviving, you know, I could pay my bills and do what I needed to do. And I generally had to have another job or two on top of that to, you know, make ends meet and maybe have a little bit, but I could never go on vacation and I could never go on long trips on my bike anymore. So I was like, you know what? Now's the time. So I decided 2012 was going to be the year of the RV. And I wasn't quite sure exactly what I was going to do and how I was, what I was going to buy and how I was going to do it. But I was like, that's what's going to happen. So I started working and I worked four, sometimes five jobs, you know, a week to be able to 80 plus hours a week to be able to save up enough to just buy the trailer outright once I decided that's the way I was going to go. And so I saved up and by October of that year, I had enough money. I bought the trailer, the trailer had come and I was just like, okay, I'm gone. (laughs) And I hit the road. (laughs) 
So your idea was to hit the road and actually live on the road permanently? Yes, that was totally my idea from the get-go. It was more kind of like, well, I'm a multimedia artist. I'm a composer and I do other video art and stuff like that. And I really wanted it to be kind of like an art project about my life, um, about how I deal with like past issues or how I live this life and how how I live simply and how can I do this and and I had no intentions of coming back to um, regular society at all. I still don't because the longer you're out, the harder it is to come back in. So I'll go out, you know, and I'll travel around and I'll camp in places or I'll go to someplace like Slab City where I'm there for a few months and then to be able to to come back into society where there are certain rules and certain ways of doing things. Um, Not that I'm an outlaw or anything like that, but, you know, like you have to look a certain way and you have to act a certain way and all of these types of weird social norms come into play that aren't necessarily there when you're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, And it gets harder and harder to come back into society. So I don't think I could ever come back and like work a full-time job and buy a house. And yeah, I don't really see that happening. I mean, something's going to have to change when I get older and I can't ride my bike anymore, but I guess I'll hit that when I hit that. (laughs) Well, you've been on the road for six years now, Mm 75,000 miles traveled on your motorcycle. What's your idea? Like what's your day-to-day plans? You just get up and ride? Um, sometimes, I have an idea where I want to be and sometimes I don't like lately because my bike is like over the 150,000 mile mark. I have to be more cautious, um, conscience, I, I should say about how far I ride and how far in the middle of nowhere I ride. Um, last year I got stuck in the middle of nowhere because my transmission broke, but, um, Generally, I kind of like find a camp spot or someplace I want to see and then that's where I'll ride and then I'll camp for a week or two and then I'll be like, ah, I'm bored. So it's time to ride. So then I'll ride somewhere. And then if I need money, so then I'll come and camp closer to a city and I can come in and generally I can go on Craigslist into the gig section and find like little odd and end work like. For instance, yesterday I worked as like a jury research person and then I was paid to come and do that for four and a half hours and little things like that. Or somebody needs help with their garden, I'll come and I'll do that or whatever I can to just get some money. I mean, I live off of very little, probably less than what I really need to survive. But, you know, and I'm trying to be as environmentally friendly as possible. Um, My dream is to um, convert my motorcycle into an electric motorcycle with a sidecar of batteries and uh, for it to be solar charged and um, charged with the wind turbine when traveling on the road. Um, But I don't know if we're quite there yet technology-wise, but that would be my ultimate dream and to travel around the world like that, to just be able to go. (laughs) So you're you're totally trailer. You've got your dog and your chicken, which Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you about your chicken, but I'm going to ask you in a minute. But when you're looking for spots and you're looking for places to go, you're saying you, you get bored at a spot. Do you have a destination and, and do you have something you want to see and then you go and find a spot to camp? Is that sort of the, the way you operate? Um, sometimes. Not, I'm, hmm. 
like, I guess what I'm trying to get around is describe living on the road to people. Like, I think a lot of times people will think, well, somebody lives in an RV or something because they have no other choice. And this certainly isn't the case when you talk to people who are doing this. It's a choice that they do and there's all kinds of reasons for it. But I mean, what's your day to day like? In other words, are you just sort of surviving in one spot or are you, you know, having an adventure? Well, to me, it's an adventure, but you have to also remember I'm quite an introvert. So going to like a national park in the middle of the summer is not my idea of fun. (laughs) But what I generally do is I pick a state. Where do I want to be? So I love to be in Montana at some point in time during the summer. So I'll go up there and I'll you know, search, there's a couple of different places you can find free campsites. And one of them is freecampsites.net. And so I'll go on there and I'll see where the different free campsites are. And then I'll be like, well, I wonder what it has. Is there a lake there or are there mountain views or is it just like desert or what is it and what brings people there? And so I'll kind of cruise over there and, 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 Another thing is if I can actually get in there. I mean, I can't go miles and miles and miles down some downhill gravel road with what my rig, but um, comfortably, I should say. And so um, I look into all of that and then I kind of see, you know, are there things to do? I'm not a huge – it's very weird. I'm not a very big micro tourist. I'm kind of like a – skim, you know, kind of like you skim a book. I kind of do that a little bit unless I meet up with some RV friends and then we can, I'm a better micro tourist is what I call it. Um, but I, I guess I enjoy the journey, um, probably more than the destination. So I love the ride, um, and getting there and I love trying to figure out, um, my setup and how can I be more efficient and the challenges of being in whatever particular place that is. So do I have enough gas to get out to this gas, get out to this camp spot and be able to come back? Or, um, is there a place to get, well, you know, there's a lot to figure out. People think it's like a pretty easy, you know, you just go and pow, you're there. It's a lot of research to figure out where you can go. Um, what do you need when you go out there? Um, are there any like wild animals out there that you need to be aware of? Uh, Weather wise, are there things you need to be aware of? Um, so it's like a full time job, just researching where to go next. And I really enjoy that part of it. You don't find that stressful that, you know, sort of looking for the next place to go and you're, you know, riding along looking for a place to camp? Not at all. That's the fun part. Yeah. I really enjoy that part because there's always, I mean, I do have certain spots that I just enjoy going back to. Either a friend lives close by or I just really like that one spot. Um, but generally, I don't go back to the same spot more than once. So I just love being able to figure it out. I mean, there's so many places to see just here in the United States and so many places to camp. But it is, it's, it's the journey that I really, really enjoy. One of the places you stayed at, you mentioned Slab City, and I'm interested. Can, can you describe what is Slab City? Well, it used to be a military base, and the military pulled themselves out and took all of the buildings, and they left all of these concrete slabs of where the buildings were. It even has like a where the pool was and everything. And then um, a bunch of people, you can boondock out there. Boondocking is camping without any sort of resources like water or electricity type of thing. And so you can find everybody from outlaws to snowbirds out there and you can live out there year round. Some people do. It gets to like 130 degrees in the summer there. But in the winter between like October and March is in season and there's live music almost every night and and just a really great community. And you can make your own camp of sorts. People build things out there. 
Um, I met a guy who dug a hole to live in because it's cooler in the summer if you dig a hole. Um, so he dug a hole and lived in there. And there was um, another place that built a three-story living space out of pallets. You can actually like stand on the top of it. Um, Where is it located? It's located um, next to the Salton Sea in southeastern California. Um, just it would be south of Palm Springs. This is an area that call, uh, I believe they say the last free place. Yes, yes. Because, well, it isn't like there isn't any law, but I mean, the police do come through there, but um, you can kind of do whatever you want and you can be whoever you want there. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, people who want to be free in their own terms go there. So like someone like me, I somewhat fit in there. And um, then you have people who, I don't know. I mean, like I said, it's everybody from outlaws, literally people hiding from the law to snowbirds live there and anything in between. Um, Did you feel safe there? Yeah. I, you know, a lot of people are scared, but uh, the only reason to be scared is if you feel the need to put your your terms on someone else. So if you're kind of a jerk, then yeah, I would be scared. <laughs> but if you come and you just enjoy the place, um, nobody's going to bother you. Nobody's going to hurt you or anything like that. I mean, it's an interesting place because every once in a while, someone will burn somebody else's rig down or something like that. But it's generally, <laughs> again, a, somebody. That, hang on, that's kind of a big thing there. <laughs> First you said it was safe and then somebody burns that. What, what happens there? Well, that's because somebody was telling somebody else how to live their life. You know, it's the last free place. Just let them live however it is they want to live. As long, you know, everybody pretty much respects your space. So I go there and I I actually have like a little camp within a larger camp I made it for myself. So I actually made myself like an outhouse and a place to shower and it's got a fence around it so the dog and the chicken can run loose or whatever. But, you know, nobody comes in there because – I just come to enjoy myself and, you know, I respect people of whoever they may be. And I try to help out where I can because, you know, a lot of um, homeless people may live there or people who are having a hard time financially or, you know, and just a little bit of compassion gets you a long ways. But people aren't just out there to get you just to get you. But, I mean, that's really a minimal thing there. I mean, the community there is great and there's people that come and, and they help with food and, and whatever they can do to help the people there that really, some of them don't have any other choice. And when snowbirds and the season comes and we bring, you know, we bring resources and these people that live there full time can sell items or experience that they have. And, there's things for them to do. So, you know, a lot of people really enjoy living out there. And there are a few people that enjoy living out there in the middle of the summer. Um, but it's a great place. And I always tell people, if you want to come visit, come visit in the season between October and, and March. It starts to get really hot anywhere outside of that. And um, come spend a few days. There's actually a couple of Airbnbs there you can stay at. You know, so I, you I can... spotted that on the internet. I, I found yep. that incredible. And and not only are there a couple of Airbnbs, actually there's, there's, there's more than a couple. Some of them have like 160 ratings on it and five star. I mean, these things, the, oh, the ratings yes. that I saw were five star ratings. You're talking about a trailer in the middle of the desert in a probably not a very pretty looking spot. 
No, but the entertainment is high. Well, the Ponderosa is one of um, one of the high rating ones there, and they have a Tuesday night chili night with um, musicians. You can come, and if you play music, you get your chili for free. And they have like a little bar, and they'll give you a tour and everything. And then there's the range where there's live music. Um, an open mic night every Saturday night, and then they'll have live music. People come in from all over the world to play at the range in Slab City. Um, and we actually, a couple of years ago, had somebody make a music video out there. And that happens quite often, videos and movies and like Into the Wild was filmed oh, right, um, out yeah. there. Yep. And so, and then you have art. So you have Salvation Mountain. Um, Leonard built this mountain and it's painted and um, because he wanted everyone to know that God loved them. And so he made this colorful mountain and you can walk to the top of it and you can walk through and through another part of it. It's really cool. And then there's um, uh, East Jesus, which is an artist community where they take junk and make it into art. And so you can walk through there and, and see things and actually, you know, play on things. And, and it's really cool. And there's so much to see. You could spend a week there and you would be busy every day during the season. Or if you don't, if you're scared, you don't have to come at and spend the night, but you can come and make a day trip and do, you know, Salvation Mountain, East Jesus. They have libraries there. Um, there's an Oasis Club there. And again, live music at the range and um, a couple of other camps have that. There was even a karaoke night this last season and a dance night and, you know, things to do all the time. And this is probably attracting a lot of people like yourself that live on the road. Yes, yes. A lot of us um, free spirit people, we end up there, especially during the season. Yeah, because, it's, you know, it's a nice place and it's it's warm, but not hot. It's, you know, it's not winter there. And, um, and you can go and you can stay there as long as you want. A lot of the boondocking spots, there's always like a limit, like a 14-day limit or something. So or seven to 14 days is usually what it is. So we travel all summer and then we come and we hang out in the slabs in the winter and and play music and and do what we can and then head out again. OK, so there's a motorcycle. You're towing a trailer. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I get that. Yeah, I've seen that before. Mm-hmm. You got a dog in the trailer. All right. Mm-hmm. It's getting there. You got a chicken. <laughs> so how do you come up with a chicken for this? Well, I get because I wanted to try to be um, sustainable, right? And so I can somewhat grow a small garden. And then I thought, you know what? I should have eggs because I don't have refrigeration. So buying eggs out of the grocery store, they're not going to last, right? Or I could go and find somebody who has fresh eggs. But when I travel all the time, that's a lot of research to find somebody who's selling fresh eggs. And I don't want eggs every day. And so I was like, you know what? I wonder what it's like to have a chicken. So I started researching chickens. And people have chickens as pets, you know, people that live in homes, they actually come into their house or, you know, there probably isn't very many that have travel with them on the road like I do. But and so in my research, you know, they have the smaller chickens and the big chickens and then they have these what it's called a silky chicken. And so a silky chicken, she actually has black meat and she has more of a fur than a feather. And she's like a show chicken is what she is. And she is hilarious and has a complete personality, which I would have never guessed, but I was just looking for something small that's kind of pet-like that would sit on your lap and not like, you know, 
bite me or whatever that could be friendly in a small space because we have a very small space. So everything kept pointing me to the silky chicken. Well, well the silky is sort of a, um, it almost looks furry, doesn't it? It's it's a yes. very, it's, you don't have to be into chickens to appreciate. My wife had silkies and you don't have to be into them to appreciate. They're a very good looking bird. They really are. Yes. And I've read someplace that the carnivals used to um, carry silky chickens and tell people that they were the chicken with fur instead of feathers. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, it almost and, looks like that. It almost looks like a fine hair on them. Like, um, And they're very fluffy and, and, and almost look like they're dressed up to go somewhere. Exactly. She looks fancy all the time. Your, your travel chicken then now supplies you with eggs every few more Yes. Yep. I get about four or five a week, which with a silky egg, they're like half the size of a large regular egg. Mm -hmm. So it technically takes two of her eggs to make one egg. So I get one good egg breakfast a week, which is perfectly fine for me. I don't want eggs every day, but you know, one good egg breakfast a week works perfect. Where does the chicken live? Well, um, she rides on the motorcycle. She loves to ride on the motorcycle. I, when I first got her, I crocheted like a pouch that went around my neck so that she would be inside my jacket and close to me because I wasn't quite sure how she was going to deal with it. So she rode that way for, I don't know, a week maybe, a week or two, and then it started to get hot. So now I, I strap a crate to the tour pack where she rides, and she likes to sit on top of her food bowl so she can like perch up there right next to the door because it kind of hangs on the door. And so she gets the wind blowing and whatever, and every once in a while you hear, hear her singing out there, and then every once in a while you'll hear her chicken lane you know, sound, and then by the next gas station I have an egg. <laughs> <laughs> and then at night, I bring her inside the teardrop with us. And my dog and her are like best friends. So <laughs> you know, this is Adventure Rider Radio, living off the bike. I mean, that's not unusual for this show. The right. trailer's a little more unusual. The chicken is bizarre, but I love I know. it. I just love I, it. <laughs> I think that's where I lose people. I mean, before when I would say, you know, yeah, I live on the road and I, you know, have a motorcycle and I pull this teardrop, people would be like, oh, and now I say, yeah, I live on the road. I ride a motorcycle. I pull a teardrop and travel with my dog and my chicken. And as soon as I say chicken, I've lost people <laughs> every time. <laughs> Before we wrap things up, what advice do you have for somebody else who might be considering doing something similar? Well, I, I get that a lot. I get emails and such from people like, oh, I wish I could do that. You know, one day I'll do that. Don't wait for one day. You just need to do it. I mean, I have retired people saying that they want to live in my little teardrop. It's not going to happen because I broke a rib and I could barely get in and out of that teardrop. But, you know, you only live once and you don't necessarily need everything. So do you need a house? Not everybody does. So if you can imagine yourself without a house and traveling the world, then do it. Nothing's stopping you but you. Jackie, stay safe out there. Thanks very much. Thank you. That was Jackie Hayen living full-time on the road from her Harley-Davidson, and we've got a link to her in our show notes for this episode. We're going to take a two-minute break. We're going to be right back. We're going to talk about a trip in Mongolia with a rally for rangers that even you could go on. Stay with us. Overland Expo East is gearing up for this November, November 9 
through 11, 2018. It's going to be held at the Reeb Ranch in Asheville, North Carolina. That's Blue Ridge Mountain Country. Really, really stunning riding place. And you should see this place. I mean, the rebranch. Wow, it's incredible. You got to go online. If you go to the Overland Expo website, they've got a link to the rebranch there. You see the pictures. Incredible. There's a cabin there that rents for $350 a night that I would love to get to stay in. (laughs) Tickets go on sale this month in June. And um, remember, you need to buy your tickets online. So don't forget to do that as soon as they come on sale, I would. So you get your spot. So what is Overland Expo? What's it all about? Well, it's billed as the world's premier overlanding event. All kinds of overlanding from motorcycles to trucks. It's it's all there. And I think one of the things that makes Overland Expo, both East and West, stand out is their top instructors for the many classes that they run. The events are so well attended that they can easily draw the top people to do instructional classes. And for you, it means you're going to get somebody who's experienced, who has been there and done that and can give you the tips and answer the questions that otherwise you wouldn't be able to get the information except for doing it yourself and making those mistakes. So learn from their mistakes. Learn from the people who have done it already. Over 140 classes scheduled for Overland Expo East. Now remember, like I said, you got to get your tickets online. So do it now, um, or at least as soon as they're available. It's supposed to be in June. So watch their website, drop by www.overlandexpo.com. And um, uh, of course, there's vendors there as well. So um, you can also buy products and get deals. And also the great thing about this sort of event is you actually get to see the vendors. So you can go from one to the other and talk to them and speak to them. And quite often you're dealing with the top people um, at the booths. So it's a great way to research some product and get a real idea in touch and feel product as well. November 9 to 11, 2018 in Asheville, North Carolina at the Rebranch. Buy your tickets online this month in June, www.overlandexpo.com. Click on East and be sure anytime you're dealing with them, email or whatever, just mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMS Products has been around since 1976, and if you grab a set of their foot pegs, you'll know why. It's quality and commitment to motorcycling. This is a company that is owned and driven by passionate riders. I think that's one thing that impresses me uh, the most. Just have a look at their ADV-1 and their ADV-2 pegs. If you uh, look at your stock peg, you're going to notice that it's likely a welded steel setup that's very small, very rudimentary. And they have the reason for doing that. The factories produce bikes for the masses. And the chances are that you, being an adventure rider, you want to do a little more technical riding than what the factory planned for you and what they had in their budget for making foot pegs. Enter IMS products. IMS pegs are made with cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They are built tough. But they're also designed in a special way for adventure riders like you and I. And I ride with them on my bike and absolutely love them. They're made in the USA. They have a lifetime warranty. So basically, they're going to be the last pegs that you ever buy. How often do you run into that with a product? Drop by and have a look for yourself at their website, www.imsproducts.com. And be sure to mention Adventure Rider Radio anytime you're dealing with them, email or whatever. It it always helps out that they know that you heard about them here. Again, www.imsproducts.com. In case you're wondering, I'm running the the rally pegs that they have right now. And man, I, I really think they're just amazing. I think it's great when riders take their enthusiasm for motorcycling 
and use it in a way to make life better for others and maybe even the planet as well. And in this case that you're gonna hear right now, you could ride the Mongolian steppe while helping park rangers do their job in a huge way. And the bonus is the cost wouldn't have to come from your pocket. It's all about connecting with others and crowdsourcing. Yeah, Tom Metema, and I am uh, a park ranger with the National Park Service. That's my day job, uh, but also a co-founder of the Rally for Rangers Foundation. Yeah, currently living in Washington, D.C. after 27 years living in various national parks throughout uh, the United States. Tom, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Rally for Rangers, let's talk about that. How did that get started? Well, it's, it's truly a grassroots story, right? One moment, you know, we, we talk about how one moment can change lives. And this is one of those cases where there was a retired U.S. park ranger by the name of Bob McIntosh, who was doing development work with the national parks in Mongolia, as many retirees from the National Park Service do. And he was over there working with the Mongol Ecology Center, a nonprofit there in Mongolia. And they were meeting with a ranger at Lake Havskal National Park which is in the extreme northern um, middle of Mongolia, near the Russian border. And they were talking mostly about visitor use. And, you know, as their, their economy grows, they're getting more and more visitors to their national parks and, and experiencing things that we've experienced here for a very long time, overcrowding in our national parks. And they were all along this uh, shoreline road there and talking about how do we keep visitors who are used to being kind of a nomadic culture, going wherever they want, whenever they want, how do we keep them on the road? How do we keep them from driving off road and, right down to the shores of the lake. And during that very conversation, a visitor came through the entrance and drove past them, turned off the road and drove right down to the shore of the lake, right as they were talking about that very problem. And the ranger was a little embarrassed and he jumped on his, his old Chinese bike um, to go address the issue. And as soon as he left the road and hit the road berm, um, that old bike just is literally disintegrated underneath him and fell apart and he crashed. Um, uninjured, but, you know, a little embarrassed again. Um, you know, our, our ranger there, Bob McIntosh, the retiree was so infuriated just by, you know, this guy's embarrassment and the condition of the equipment that he had, that he said to everybody around him in that moment, he said, I'm, I'm getting this guy a new bike. And this is a 70 year old retired park ranger, by the way. <laughs> and he's like, I'm getting this guy a new bike and I'm riding it here myself and I'm going to give it to him next summer. And another um, member of the Mongol Ecology Center there, Wesley uh, Thornberry, said, you know what? I, I ride. I'll do that. I'll do that with you. And the idea was born. They came back to the States, um, particularly around the Bay Area of the United States, and started talking it up with friends. And before they knew it, 15 people had said, you know what? Absolutely, I'll do that. And there were 15 rangers, and they needed 15 bikes. And Rally for Rangers was born, you know, out of that single moment and that single, I think that Bob regretted it almost as soon as he'd said it because <laughs> he knew what he was going to have to fulfill. Um, but there he was a year later in 2014 with uh, 14 other riders on these new bikes riding a thousand miles across the steppe and bringing them to those park rangers. And, and that kind of movement was born. So what's the problem then in Mongolia as far as the parks department goes? Why don't they put more funding into it so they can buy motorcycles? Yeah, well, you know, Mongolia is still an emerging democracy, right? They were they were invaded in the late 30s by Stalin, um, and they were under Russian rule for a very long time. 
their Buddhist culture was destroyed. Uh, their, their, a lot of their historic culture was destroyed, you know, during that occupation. And only in 1992 did they gain their independence. And you have to remember they're landlocked in between Russia and China. So they are a little bastion of democracy that's, that's completely pinned in between those two giant um, countries. And so they have no port. They have no, no access, you know, to trade really. And so they don't have a lot of resources. What they, what they have is copper. And so there's been a, a copper mining boom. Um, but also what that means is that all of their national parks are only 25 years old, right? They were born the same time the country was. And so, uh, and being again, a nomadic culture and a culture that everything is open to grazing and, and, you know, this idea of protecting areas, um, from grazing and for, you know, protective purposes was just not something that the people have taken to easily. And so the resources have come very slowly. Uh, these rangers, um, often have to buy their own gas, you know, for their motorcycles. They kind of, every ranger has a horse and a motorcycle. Um, and actually some of them ride reindeer as well, uh, in the winter months. And so they they buy these $900 Chinese bikes because that's all they can afford. And that's all the government will, will give them. And they sleep, you know, under tarps. They, I actually witnessed these guys come up to our camp one night when we were over there they cut down a tree, a sapling, and they made their tent. They had their tarp, but they didn't have anything else. And they actually made the tent right there in front of me. And here I am setting up my, you know, $300 donated Big Agnes tent, you know, ready, easy to go and waterproof and everything. And these guys are making their tarp tent right in front of me. And they do that every night year round. So, um, so the idea of a new motorcycle to them, it, you know, of this quality of it, you know, this Yamaha AG 200, um, pretty remarkable. So they are, they're vastly under-resourced for what they have to do and how the, the ground they have to cover. What do the rangers do? What, what's their job? Is it the same sort of thing as in North America? Uh, it's a little different. What they don't have that we have is law enforcement authority. And so they're re- really looking for voluntary compliance and education. Um, so they're, but anti-poaching, you know, is one of the, the greatest things that they do. And we're familiar with that in other countries too, of course, Africa, South America. Um, you know, there's the snow leopard to protect and there's Ibex and the Argali sheep and the taman, uh, one of the largest trout species in the world is, is also heavily poached. So, uh, they're trying to keep up with poachers who have much, much better equipment. And so they're patrolling a lot, um, for poachers. They're also trying to keep grazing, you know, that's traditionally happened for thousands of years from happening in these protected landscapes, um, trying to stem some development. There's a lot of illegal development, which, Something we can't really, you can imagine in maybe, you know, Banff National Park that all of a sudden over the course of, of a period of time, a new hotel shows up and nobody approved it. Nobody really knew it was going to go there except for maybe, you know, somebody in the member of parliament or there was some sort of graft and corruption going on. Um, we just can't imagine those things happening in our national parks in North America. Um, and yet over there, literally uh, a gear camp, a yurt camp can pop up overnight illegally. And it's very hard for them to get those out once they've established themselves. So, and then there's ninja mining, there's illegal mining that goes on. And ninja mining is just a couple of individuals who find a small seam of, of copper or some other resource. And they, they quietly and discreetly mine it. Um, a little bit like what we have in the States here where we have maybe marijuana plantations that pop up and there's a couple of people, you know, hidden away in a national park somewhere growing marijuana illegally. They have that ninja mining aspect over there. So, uh, and search and rescue, of course, and, you know, the, some of those traditional things that rangers do as well. So they have a, a robust set of responsibilities. And, you know, let's take Yosemite National Park, for example, which has almost a thousand employees um, and hundreds of rangers. 
this lake we went to in northern Mongolia uh, are roughly the same size as Yosemite. They have 30 people to cover that entire distance. Hmm. So they're doing far, far more travel in far more remote locations than even what we do here in the States um, and, and are facing a lot of, you know, personal as well as resource threats. Pretty forward thinking if they're just they're sort of becoming a, a country on their own and they're already worried right at the start about setting up national parks. It sort of says something about the thought process that they have towards the land. That's absolutely right. You know, and their their culture obviously is rich uh, and steeped in history, you know, with Chinggis Khan being, of course, the the main focus of that history, but their natural resources have been their livelihood, you know, for their entire existence. And so they have not just the, the world heritage sites like the UNESCO world heritage sites that are cultural, but they also have, you know, these incredible natural resources that, um, that they've come to appreciate. And you can imagine the demands on, uh, you know, poaching in particular when you are right next to China, which is such a heavy user of, you know, illegal wildlife trade. And, and they're right across the border from the snow leopard and the Gobi bear and the ibex and, you know, these other animals that the pressures are, are pretty strong. And so they want to protect their wildlife. And uh, it is very forward thinking. Um, but we also have to realize they're, you know, they're 100, 150 years behind us in the States in terms of development. So we really do have a lot to offer uh, in terms of, you know, helping, but you're correct. They are absolutely a forward thinking society when it comes to protecting their culture and their land. Describe the landscape. Landscape is incredibly variable. Now I've been over the course of the three rallies we've done so far, I've been able to see the extreme north, the mountains to the north, which go up in the, you know, 13,000 feet range in snow capped mountains and enormous lakes and rivers um, dense forest, the, the northern taiga, they call it, um, up where the reindeer herders live, one of the, the last kind of nomadic cultures that still exist um, in Asia. Uh, and then last year, all the way down into the southern Gobi Desert to the singing sand dunes and the flaming cliffs and places that Marco Polo visited. And, and many of the early dinosaur discoveries were made in just dry, arid, you know, desert landscapes. Um, and then, you know, Mongolia is known for the steppe and the, the steppe is just endless rolling grass hillsides. And, and for the uh, for the cashmere goats, for the sheep, for the yaks, um, cows and, and all the different camels and things that they herd there. Um, it's the steppe that really kind of inspires the imagination for a lot of people in that vast rolling steppe. And you're out there with. You know, you can be riding along, just kind of lost in your own thoughts, and you look off to one side, and there's a, a herd of 50, 60, 70 seemingly wild horses that are running alongside of you. Um, this is kind of magical scene that you can imagine going back, you know, a thousand years when, you know, when Genghis Khan and others were were on the countryside with with those horses and using that as their primary mode of transportation. There aren't very many wild horses left, but the horses are, are free range. Everything there is free range. You know, you don't find a fence in the entire country of Mongolia. And so it's just the broad open step, you know, that's so inspiring. Um, and this year, I'm, I'm really excited about our July rally because we're going to the far west, um, to the Altai Mountains, uh, which are some of the highest and most remote mountains near the Kazakhstan border with, with Russia and China and where the, uh, the Kazakh culture is very strong and the Eagle Hunters, which many people have now heard about because of the Eagle Huntress film that came out a year or so ago. Um, I'm very anxious to see that kind of high Alpine, um, Altai mountains. So it's in terms of riding, in terms of just touring, you know, it's, it's incredibly variable and very diverse. 
Um, you know, certainly nothing in the order of rainforest, but it feels like they have almost everything else. Is it a, sort of a beginner, um, is it accessible to the beginner rider or is it, do you no, need advanced no. off-road skills? No, yeah, it is definitely not accessible to the beginner rider. There's almost no pavement in Mongolia. Uh, it's the least densely populated country in the world. You know, there's something like two people per square mile um, once you get outside of the, the main city of Ulaanbaatar. And the, it's, it's largely roadless. And uh, what we would consider trail riding, you know, they consider roads. And hmm. so the riding is a, is a mix, you know, and some of the most challenging riding, you know, that we, that we see. And I always, you know, kind of harken back to the long way around, you know, that we've all seen. And I believe there's only one episode where Ewan McGregor actually cries because of how frustrated and difficult things are. And it was one of the two episodes in Mongolia. Um, it's just incredibly technical riding, you know, with, with everything from dry riverbed to deep sand to, to climbing and descending on mountain passes to, you know, water crossing after water crossing after water crossing, um, and just everything in between. And so, um, not for the faint of heart, you know, but certainly an exciting challenge for, for those who love off-road riding. Uh, and we've, you know, that first year, we definitely had some people, including myself that weren't prepared. Um, you know, for that type of off-road riding. So each year we've gotten a little more uh, selective, you know, in our process of, of selecting riders because people who think they've done off-road travel have probably done a lot of fire roads, dirt roads, maybe some two-track. Um, and, and, you know, they think that they're ready for what Mongolia has to offer. And it's a, it's a different thing when you get there. Well, you started out with a, a street riding background and this was sort of your introduction to off-road riding. Yes, it absolutely was. And I, you know, I, I was one of those unprepared riders and, um, you know, I had ridden my whole, not my whole life, my, my whole adult life, uh, as a kid, you know, I was, uh, evil Knievel was king and I had a bed sheet that was all dirt bikes uh, and I didn't own any, I didn't ride any, my family didn't ride, but I, I guess I knew way back then when I was 10 years old. I was destined to, you know, to do this. And, uh, but I had a Harley Davidson first and a sportster and, you know, just a commuter bike and a street bike. And then, um, traded that in for, uh, the BMW R 1200 C the cruiser, you know, again, a beautiful, great cruising machine. Um, but never touched a dirt off road. And then when this, this idea of this rally came up to get, came to me at the last minute in May of, of 2014, um, they had just had somebody drop out and they had a, an open space and, and I learned about it in mid-May and the rally was that they were leaving for the rally on like July 2nd, six weeks away. <laughs> and I had never been off road in my life. Wow. And, um, you know, so what do you do? I mean, it's this opportunity. I'm like, not only are they riding off road, which was a dream of mine, but they were bringing motorcycles to park rangers, my, my colleagues, right? My compatriots. I mean, I get goosebumps just talking about it now. Like what an incredible thing, putting these two things together, riding for the environment and making this donation. I could not say no. And so, um, you know, first, of course, I called my mom and, and told them I needed a little money if they were willing to donate. And my mom was, of course crying about me riding a motorcycle, uh, in Mongolia. <laughs> but then she called me back about a half hour later and said, here's a thousand dollars for you, you know? And I would, then I started crying, um, and got that support right away, but I didn't have a bike to ride. I mean, I, I had, you know, just the BMW. And so I borrowed a friend's, uh, KLX and I rode maybe four hours of fire roads in the Sierra Nevada mountains and deemed myself ready. And yeah, the, the moment I touched dirt over there, I was gripped. 
Uh, we had somebody go down in the first two hours off-road, broken collarbone, sent him home on the first day. Um, so I was terrified, quite frankly. And and I was a strong athlete, you know, and and I, I, I felt some confidence, but I was ill-prepared for what that was. And so I sat in the back right ahead of the tail rider. And he was a great guy um, uh, from New Zealand and was always coaching me, you know, all the time. And I could kind of watch him. But I'll never forget, you know, I would constantly be looking in my rearview mirror and he'd be ditching right or ditching left. And I'm like, where's he going? And then all of a sudden I would hit some horrific thing. And I'm like, oh, he saw it. I didn't. Right. He's, <laughs> you know, he'd be riding up alongside of me. And I'm like, why are you up there? And then I would hit something and fall down and he'd be like, yeah, you got to see those things coming. And so uh, it was a daily, you know, learning process. But I mean, what better training ground? My goodness. Um, you know, and again, we weren't riding at breakneck speeds. We were, uh, you know, being very thoughtful about it. And, and, uh, even Bob McIntosh, the 70 year old, he made it through, you know, just a couple of days and then decided, you know what, it's, this is not a safe thing for me. So we, we had one of the locals ride his bike for him. Um, but I finished and, you know, I made it through, I did every extra day tour. I just rode and I rode and I rode and I learned and I learned. And, um, yeah. And, and once actually, quite frankly, the thing that stuck for me because I have a strong skiing background, coaching, racing. And once I kind of put those two things together, um, it became an incredible thrill and joy when I was able to see my riding as my skiing, whether it be moguls, whether it be cornering, waiting, unwaiting, with all those things. And then I started to learn that a lot of these professional ski racers, they ride motocross in the off season. I'm like, okay, I get it. Like it is absolutely back and forth. Um, and so now, you know, here a few years later, I mean, I am now I'm right behind the lead rider. I'm, you know, I'm up front uh, and I'm helping others. And, you know, I've just become addicted to off-road adventure riding. And that is absolutely my future. Did you take a course after you came back from that first trip? I did. I did. We, we took a course um, in California, Garahan Off-Road, um, at one of the, the ORV parks in California. Uh, several of us took that course. And so we practiced log jumping, we practiced ruts, we practiced, you know, a lot. Actually ended up in the, <laughs> a brief stint in the hospital at the end of that training. Um, it was definitely some hard skills work. And I had just hurt my foot a bit on the peg uh, during a crash. But um, yeah, so we've, we've done that. Um, and now we've gotten hooked in with some other training groups out there that are interested in helping us, like Rawhide Adventures and some others, um, you know, to help get the riders trained up and and ready to go. So I still need more training, but, um, but I feel, you know, like I've, I can definitely, I know what's coming and, and my skills are growing by day by day. So is somebody in another part of the country, obviously far removed from Mongolia, why should they care about Mongolian parks? Yeah. You know, that's an awesome question really, because that's, we got, we got that a lot. Um, so, you know, we are obviously a global culture, and more and more all the time, the resources in other countries impact the resources, not just in their neighboring countries, but in countries around the world. And when it comes to managing and studying climate change, we can't just look at the parks or the public lands in one country or one place. We have to look to our neighbors and as a collection across the globe. Um, when it comes to, to species diversity, you know, one of the things that has sustained humankind for millennia is species diversity. And when you look at the incredible loss of species overall uh, globally, 
and you look at how we're still facing so many different kinds of disease globally um, that, that likely weren't faced historically, what's the connection between those things? The science is still growing in this area, but what does it mean to lose a species? Well, in some cases, we can draw a direct line between the loss of that species and the impact on other species. But, you know, John Muir, of course, said it way back when that, you know, when you tug on one thing in the universe, you know, you, you find that all things are connected. And so we need to care about these species and these, these lands across the globe. And you know, there's a reason that UNESCO formed to have these world heritage sites. It's not a Mongolian heritage site. It's a world heritage site that we as a people share this, this you know, kind of common history and this common, you know, residence on this planet that's flying through the universe. And it, it is fragile. And I think that many people do not feel the fragility of it when they don't get out and see uh, the rest of the world. But so we feel those impacts pretty deeply, um, you know, in our country and, and but even more so in developing in third world countries. And so if we can help them with our kind of advanced knowledge and in, in our, our money and uh, help them protect resources in their country, we in the long term, we don't just benefit them, but we benefit their neighbors and we benefit ourselves. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're coming to the realization that the world is one and our little countries that we've drawn up here, are just these imaginary lines that we draw. Um, you know, it's interesting how you'll see animals run across, you know, your lawn to the next lawn, the next lawn, oblivious to the lines that you've drawn saying, hey, that's my fence and the air we breathe. I mean, I think we're sort of coming to the realization now, and I say us as in society, that we're all connected. And that is the reason we, we should be worrying about those sorts of things, because that remote park does have an effect on us as a species, even personally. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. I, I think it's extremely important that we look at, in particular, those places that are far away, because it's so easy to forget about them because they're not close to you and just protect your local park. But uh, of course, and, and the next question is, is um, well, why not just, you know, raise money and, and send it to them and say, go buy your bikes? Yeah, yeah. There, and, you know, there's one thing I want to follow up on real quick on the previous conversation that your comments reminded me of is it's not just them learning from us, right? Mongolia has a fenceless culture. Can you imagine that in our country? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we are, or even North America for that matter. I imagine that Canada's much more fenced, less fenced than our country is. Um, but yeah, fences are political. They're only political. Uh, whether it's a personal fence or a government fence, it's still a political fence, a political boundary. Um, and Mongolia does not have, you know, what can we learn from their ability for their species to roam freely? You know, to all of these different places and even for to a degree, their people to roam freely to roam from place to place to place without this mine and yours mentality. We can learn, uh, you know, from the way that they manage their their culture and their land just as much as they can learn you know, from us. So, the, you know, a lot of people have asked, why don't you just, you know, raise money and ship the bikes over there? And that's a it's a fair question. Um but if I came to you or I, I came to a family member or a friend and I said, hey, I want to raise some money to, to ship these motorcycles to these rangers over there who need them, um, you know, they might say, oh, that's, that's neat. I, you know, they might give me $5 or $10. But when we approach them with the story that what happened, first of all, and how it was all, you know, came to be, and that I am going to actually travel, I'm going to fly over there. Um, I'm going to take that motorcycle that you and I bought together and I'm going to ride a thousand miles across the step and I'm going to give it to that guy in person and I'm going to make sure he knows that you helped me get this bike there 
And we're going to do that together. We're going to have this adventure together and, you know, we're going to make this difference together. Then I get a hundred dollars. I get $500. I've got one donor who gave me 500 the first year, a thousand the second year and 1500 the third year, you know? And mm. so that just isn't going to happen if you're just shipping product somewhere. And so people are inspired by the idea and they want to be a part of it. And very much like so many people are doing a, a bicycle ride or a run for, for cancer or for AIDS prevention or, you know, when you're physically doing uh, the thing and, and you're making a rally out of it and you're putting yourself at risk and you're putting all this time investment, you're taking your own vacation time. People are inspired by that. And so we find that the, um, that the money, you know, I don't want to say it raises itself, but it is, it is definitely a compelling story. Um, and that's one of the things people kind of react to right away is the, is the price tag. And they say, well, I can't afford that. And I'm like, well, you don't have to afford it. You have a network. No matter who you are, you have a network that can afford this. And in the States, it's also tax deductible because we're a nonprofit and, you know, it's for this cause. And so it's not just you having an adventure ride for, for your own benefit. Um, you know, it's a, it's a for benefit ride. And so we do find that, people have great success in fundraising behind this story. And it also creates the, I mean, you're talking about raising funds, but also creates the enthusiasm behind the event, but then it creates that, that connection, I imagine, because you're actually sending a group of people that are being seen ride through the country that are meeting these ranges. I, I mean, I can picture so much more to it rather than just, if you just sent over a check and they bought bikes and they said, oh, this came from this remote place, this organization and put a sticker on it. Um, the whole thing, I mean, I, I can see an excitement on both sides from the people who are doing it and the people who are the beneficiaries of it. That's right. And each, each rider becomes an ambassador, right? For the foundation and for Mongolia and for the rangers there. And so they inspire their network. And so many of the riders that we've gotten now, which at the end of this year, you know, we'll have personally ridden, um, I guess, 75 motorcycles across Mongolia uh, and now Patagonia. Uh, those 75 people, you know, a lot of those people came from others who went before and, and then they came back and told stories and they're like, I want to do that. And that, that spreads that network of connectivity and that network of support is so much stronger as opposed to, yeah, just a foundation who was itself raising money. You wouldn't have nearly the network of support or the connection of people. Um, and so it definitely works, you know, both ways to really inspire and promote what we do. So if someone goes on this, they're, they're going on an amazing adventure. So what's the deal if somebody wants to sign up? How do you do it? So the uh, rallyforrangers.org is our, is our website, and there's an application button on there, and we're just now actually kind of updating that for next year, for 2019, where we're looking at going to back to Mongolia uh, to do a rally that is in support of snow leopard protection in particular. Um, and then we're also talking about uh, we've been invited to do a rally in Nepal in uh, November of 2019. And so we're, we're looking ahead uh, to the next two rallies in 2019 and what those might look like. And that application is being updated now. So, so people go in and they tell us, you know, what they want to do and why they want to do it and, uh, and how, what their experience is, what their international travel experience has been, what their riding experience. We ask for video clips if they have them, because again, we need to try and evaluate uh, riders. And, um, and, you know, and the application is important. And I'll tell anybody who's listening who wants to do it, you know, I, I put a couple of applications um, off to the side this year because 
you know, somebody would say, you know, yeah, Hey, I really want to do that ride because it's cool. Sounds really cool. Or sounds like an awesome adventure or, you know, that's not what, what we're looking for. Right. I mean, what, why do you want to go, you know? And yes, of course it's an awesome adventure, but we want people who are smitten by the cause and people who are there for the right reason. And, and we also like people who have to fundraise. Now we'll take anybody, you know, who's got the riding skill and the passion for it. But some people have a company who can write them a check. Some people are, are, well enough off to, to write a check themselves, but most people have to raise the money. And quite honestly, we prefer that because of the same things you and I just talked about. That broadens the network. They're more invested, more people are invested rather than just somebody who has money in their pocket to write a check for, you know, $8,500 and just come on the ride. Um, and again, that's not to disparage people who can do that because they have the same passion as well. It just, we want to keep growing that network. Uh, we had one writer who we named an award after the first year, Anton Berteau. Anton raised, I think, $38,000. Wow. You know, he, he had to raise 7500 And he raised wow. $38,000 all by himself. And and this is not somebody who's well off by any stretch, but he tapped into a network. And so now we, we have the I Am Anton Award, you know, in his honor for the person that raises the most money each year. Um, because it's, the, it's not just the motorcycles that we need to pay for, right? We're, we're a new nonprofit. And so we need f money to run the nonprofit. You know, you need computers and you need, we don't have staff. We're all volunteers, but we travel to shows, Overland Expo and the Timonium Bike Show and uh, Horizons Unlimited shows all over. And that costs money. And so we're, we're not just trying to raise money for each rally, but we're trying also then to support the work of the foundation to grow our network more and more. So those, those that go the extra mile, you know, are really helpful to help achieve the mission of the organization and give the organization a strong, you know, financial foundation, which we just don't have yet. Well, I really like when motorcyclists are, are taking initiatives to do things like this. And, and Tom, you are doing great stuff there. Thanks very much for letting us know about it. Absolutely. Thank you for the time. been speaking with Tom Metema from Rally for Rangers. It's www.rallyforrangers.org. And we have a link to that and some other information in our show notes for this episode. just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much. 
If you like what we're doing, you want to hear more, drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. We've got all of our episodes there to download and a bunch of things in the show notes too. I strongly encourage you to drop by. We get a lot of traffic to the website, um, which has kind of surprised me actually. I, I always thought with um, podcasting that we would get all of our traffic just through the show, but um, a lot of people go to the website. It's a lot of stuff there. And don't forget, we, we started doing the transcripts this year as well. That's one thing, you know, if, if you go there and you find use of the transcripts, I'd love it if you just pop me an email, let me know that they're working for you. If you find value in it, that would be kind of neat. But anyway, drop on the website. We also have our other show of Raw that comes out once a month. That's a roundtable discussions about overlanding and motorcycling that I do with the five other people. And um, we get a, a great response from that one from listeners. So if you haven't heard it already, drop by and check that out. And if you like what we're doing, you want to help out, we do have the show built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. We have uh, several different ways you can do it. One of them is you can drop by the website. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. It's a pen, your sticker. It says Adventure Rider Radio, which I think is cool. Of course, I'm biased. Uh, but the other way to do it is to uh, click on our patron link and sign up for a monthly amount. And, you know, like, just think of, you know, any amount you want to give, like price a cup of coffee, uh, you know, a tank of fuel, whatever you want to do is great. It all helps. And if everybody would um, would do that approach for things that they like, and I don't mean just our show, for anything that you like, I mean, support them directly because I think it's the best way to support the things that you want to hear, you want to see as we change into this, this digital world that we live in. Anyway, so drop by, check out the Patreon link. And if you do that, we would really appreciate it. Make a big deal for us because it means that we don't have to worry about it each month. We can count on your support being there. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Carl Parker from ADV Moto Magazine, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!